You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 30th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Guy Delaunay. Coming up on today's programme... Rivellino, watch Pelé now. What a beautiful goal for Pelé. El Rey Pelé. 100 goals for Brazil. The world pays tribute to Pelé following the death of Brazil's icon at the age of 82. We'll have the latest. We'll also be marking the passing of an iconoclast. The punk movement, I mean... That was just a fashion that became a marketing opportunity for people and it's great nowadays to see young people dressed as a punk. British fashion designer Dame Vivienne Westwood brought punk style into the mainstream. We'll be hearing about her cultural legacy. Is the high street making a comeback? Broadcaster and finance journalist Louise Cooper joins us to scope out the sales. And in the studio with me is Monocle's Laura Kramer with the cultural roundup. What have you got for us? Avatar has crossed the $1 billion mark at the box office, but it still needs to make double that in order to break even. And I've got yet another reason why Taylor Swift is referred to as the music industry. It'll be Taylor time later, right here on The Briefing with me, Guy Delaunay. One of the greatest footballers ever to play the game has died at the age of 82. Pelé is credited with scoring almost 1,300 goals in just about the same number of games. And he's the only player ever to have won the World Cup on three occasions. But above all that, he transcended his sport and became a global icon. Well, joining me now from Brazil is Fernando Augusto Pacheco, the senior correspondent for Monocle 24. Uh, welcome to the programme. And I imagine that the Brazil, I know there's three days of, of official national mourning. It uh, must be a country that's, uh, you know, while it's seen this loss coming, coming is nonetheless devastated. We'll be hearing a lot about Pelé because he's more than a football player for Brazil. Uh, in my opinion, Guy, I think he brought Brazil to the global stage. Uh, it, it's known for Brazilians that we have this inferiority complex. We always think that something from abroad is better. Pelé, I mean, he, he was the greatest football player. So we, with him, uh, he gave us some sort of light, you know, and kind of, proudness of being Brazilian. So more than a football player, his name is very much intertwined uh, with the country. This is a remarkable. There's no other uh, Brazilian person that can do this uh, these days. And is he a unifying figure? Because we look at the, the, the current national team icon, Neymar, and he is a devices figure both uh, at home and abroad. Pelé, looking from the outside, always seemed to cross boundaries. Very much so. I mean, listen, he did have his critics, especially on the later stages uh, of his career. You know, some uh, family issues here and there. But even with uh, this criticism, even his uh, kind of worst critics, they have to admit what Pelé did for the country. I mean, he served as our ambassador. Uh, he's the one who, who met uh, Queen Elizabeth when, he came, when she visited Brazil uh, in the late 60s. Uh, he's the one who's been invited by Ronald Reagan back in 1986 uh, to visit the White House. I mean, it's incredible. I was even looking, Guy, at the British front page today. Pelé was literally on the front page of every single paper, from the Financial Times to the Daily Star, uh, Le Monde. And even with my visits, you know, around the world, from Morocco to Senegal, 
if I say I'm from Brazil, people will mention the name Pelé. It is remarkable. I mean, and, and, and as you rightly said, he's the only player that won three times the World Cup. So there is a reason for him to be the icon he is. I mean, he was a fantastic player. Uh, you know, technically perfect. He's very charismatic. He knows very well you know, how to create his own brand as well. You've had national icons in music, uh, people like, you know, who are internationally famous, people like Tom Jobim, uh, people like Caetano Veloso, Gilberto Gil, but at the end of the day, I couldn't see them appearing on international front pages in the same way that Pele does. I suppose there must be this recognition in Brazil that, you know, however you feel about music with regards to football and cultural significance, Pele is the guy he really does represent. Absolutely. And, and I'm glad you mentioned music, Guy, because, I mean, I don't know if many people know that, but actually Pelé was a very artistic man as well. He did actually, uh, you know, he was a singer at times. Uh, he participated in a few films and even in a soap opera uh, in the late 60s. He was even a cartoon character by Mauricio de Souza, one of our biggest cartoonists. And there was a character named by him called Pelezinho. Uh, so it, it's interesting that, of course, he was a football player, but he was involved in every single part of Brazilian society with art, music, uh, football, you know, politics as well. Let's not forget that. He was our sports minister uh, in the 90s, in the first government of Fernando Henrique Cardoso. Uh, and, and it's interesting. Let's talk also that he was uh, a black man for many black Brazilians. Mm. It was the first time, I mean, the most famous Brazilian ever a black man, you know, so this is quite interesting. I mean, in his way, I mean, I don't think he was the, you know, a mega kind of political activist in a way, but even that uh, side, for many Brazilians, I think he represented a lot, uh, you know, more than just the sport. It's very interesting you mentioned the music. Uh, I've just, uh, while we've been talking, I've just flicked up the idea of uh, where, where, what his musical career and uh, the NME, the New Musical Express website in Britain, has actually uh, got a tribute to Pele's musical career, which uh, so it, it is being acknowledged, Fernando. Um, this three days of mourning, what are we going to see happening during it or at the end of it? Well, I think the family decided, well, I'm not 100% sure, but I think the family decided that the funeral will be on the 2nd of January. Because, you know, here in Brazil, as I said, it's in the middle of the summer. There will be a New Year's. Uh, of course, the, 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 the President Lula will become officially president on the 1st of January. There's lots of things happening in this period in Brazil. So, the, But the 2nd uh, of January in Santos, you know, it will be open to the public as well. If they want to pay their tribute, you know, to, to the amazing, great uh, Pelé as well. So, And, of course, we're hearing tribute. And even the TV schedule has to change quite a lot. It's funny, guys, because today Global, our main broadcaster, they have their annual show called The Retrospective of the Year. Uh, and, of course, I, I can see that, that the editors, they're having to work very hard uh, to add some last-minute uh, bits about Pelé as well. A uh, lot of uh, tributes for the president. And, again, he transcended uh, left and right because Bolsonaro announced morning uh, the new president, Lula, uh, already wrote messages about him. International figures, Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron. I mean, just look at the importance uh, of Pelé as well. But yes, as I said, that's the only story that the country is discussing. I remember I mentioned to my family, those, it's funny when I mentioned Pelé died. There was a sudden silence in the room. Um, I can see my dad thinking, he was like, wow, I never forget 1970. I was about 10 years old. That was one of my first experiences uh, with the World Cup. So it's a very emotional day. Uh, for many Brazilians too. 
I think there's a statue at Liverpool of the great Liverpool manager Bill Shankly and on it it has inscribed, he made the people happy and I think that probably applies to Pelé as well. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Fernando. That's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Now, British fashion designer Dame Vivian Westwood has also died. She was 81 years old and she'll always be thought of as being a key mover in the punk movement of the 1970s. And she brought formerly extreme styles into the mainstream. Westwood eventually built a global fashion brand, but her original boutique in London's King's Road, which she opened in its original form in 1971, is still operating today. And with me now is Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Uh, Welcome to the programme, Natalie. And this is the thing, we, we, we talk about icons, but she was an iconoclast, wasn't she? That's true. She was truly an icon of British fashion, but I think her influence really surpassed fashion and and touched on culture as well. And uh, she will really be missed. And and there was really been an outpouring of love from the fashion community, but also much broader. In the clip we had at the start of the programme, she talked about how punk turned into a, a marketing opportunity. And I suppose she took advantage of it to a certain extent, but she seemed to be delighting in the fact that people took it for their own thing and would dress up as punks and literally and metaphorically wave two fingers at the establishment. Absolutely. I think, yes, it's it's a long uh, time since those original days when she opened uh, the boutique World's End in, in the 70s with Malcolm McLaren and literally brought, invented punk and brought it into fashion. But uh, she took advantage of, of the mainstreaming of, of punk and uh, what she said uh, more recently, which was really interesting, is that she recognizes that she moved her own label into luxury and into the mainstream mm. in many ways. But she kept some of that punk attitude and that attitude of rebellion and that with every collection, with every design, she wanted to make people think or maybe question something and raise those some issues even if it was uncomfortable for for people or if it meant that her company didn't become the global empire that it could have become uh had she let go completely of of that attitude and that way of thinking she had this very restless creativity in the 1970s i mean exemplified by the way in which her shop kept on changing its name let it exactly. rock sex seditionaries and then finally world's end i mean how to what extent did she keep that as even as she entered the mainstream I think she had, uh, she kept it on uh, quite well, and she was one of the few that really stuck to her guns. Um, of course, Vivian Westwood, the brand grew, but there was still this boutique feel uh, at, with everything that she did. And more recently, also, she was such a loud environmental advocate that she started reducing her collections. She made sure that that she had only a handful of boutiques and that she always made a statement when when she put on a runway show. So it, it a lot had changed since the the, the heydays of uh, of World's End, but uh, she s- stuck to her spirit. I would say up until the the end. And was it a style that worked for you personally, Natalie? I mean, would you have a favorite Westwood wood piece, or was it uh, one of these things where it said she wasn't a designer which, who chimed with you personally? I think there was a lot. Of- 
I have definitely a more traditional style, I would say, than a lot of the Vivian Westwood uh, silhouettes and aesthetic. But I, the beauty of, of the Vivian Westwood brand was that actually there was a lot for everyone. And yes, she was punk and rebellious and a little bit extreme in some cases, but she was also a master tailor and she valued tradition in many ways, worked with uh, Harry's tweed, with tartans, and uh, she brought corsets back into fashion. And really the, the craft and construction of her garments were was exemplary. And uh, I would say that her tailoring was impeccable and something that many of us, even people like me and you that might dress a little bit more mainstream or low key, could find something in a Vivian Westwood boutique. And hopefully that will continue uh, as her partner Andreas now takes on the, the helms of the, of the whole company and continues her legacy. Thanks for joining us, Natalie. That's Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Now here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Guy. A court in military-ruled Myanmar has found the country's toppled leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, guilty of corruption charges. She has been sentenced to seven years in prison and the last of a string of criminal cases in an 18-month-long trial process. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said most regions were without power in freezing temperatures following a barrage of Russian missile attacks all over the country. At least three people were killed in the attacks yesterday. More than 10 people have been killed in eastern Syria following a rocket attack on a bus with oil industry employees. There has been no immediate claim of responsibility, but the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says Islamic State is behind the attack. Syrian Kurdish-led forces say they have arrested more than 50 militants in an operation against the terror group's sleeper cells. And the U.S. is considering sampling wastewater taken from international aircraft to track emerging new COVID-19 variants as cases surge in China. Infectious disease experts say the proposed testing would provide a better solution for tracking the virus and slowing its entry into the U.S., All travelers from China are now required to show negative test results to enter the country. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Guy. Thanks, Laura, and we'll hear more from you shortly. Now for the latest news in the finance world. Let's talk to Louise Cooper, broadcaster and finance journalists. Um, Louise, I've been along a very rainy Oxford Street this morning. It's kind of a mixed bag along there. But uh, are we seeing a return of the high street? So we do know that uh, the Boxing Day, Boxing Day sales, 26th of December sales in the UK, saw massive increases in footfall. Something like 50 to 60% more people went out on the high street this year. But that only compares to the year before, where we're still in COVID lockdowns. Mm. I mean, if you look at the bigger, bigger picture, um, yes, it's nice that we can all get out and about again. But because of you know a, a slowing economy and high prices, uh, inflation hitting consumers' incomes hard then what we do know is retailers are offering some big, big, big discounts. And so I think a lot of people probably thought we're not going to buy pre-Christmas, we'll go out in the Christmas sales because there's so many good bargains to be had. So in terms of the bigger picture, the shift online is still there. Global recession still looking likely, or at least a recession in in Europe and in America. Um, So I think it's probably way too early to say that high streets are back in fashion in 2023. Are you seeing any trend, though, uh, Louise, in the sense that uh, shopping might be coming back as a leisure activity? Because, you know, let's face it, uh, if you shop online, it's the ultimate and transactional. You're just uh, clicking and, you know, that's about it, isn't it? Nothing really happens. There's no sense of texture, no sense of occasion, no sense of surprise, really. Are people seeking that in in their lives these days again? 
Well, we're definitely seeing the rise of the experience economy and, you know, things have become so cheap, although that may well change in the future with the sort of disintegration of the global um, globalisation trend. But we are definitely seeing, you know, the rise of the experience economy. That has been around for quite some time. Interestingly, if you speak to like the bosses of EasyJet and holiday companies, they will say that the last thing people cut is, is the holiday. Mm. And this is also the key time of year straight after Christmas, where people book their summer holidays. So it'll be very, very interesting to see if a bumper summer holiday season is expected in 2023. So they may be experiencing a bumper holiday season, but hedge funds have been getting hammered their worst year in over a decade. Horrendous year for stock markets. Global MSCI index down 20%. Tech stocks utterly hammered. You know, Amazon share price down 51%. Tesla share price down 71% year to date. I mean, tech has been hammered. And I haven't even started on Chinese tech companies. Um, So, and, and then on top of that, we've had global markets, global bond markets, absolutely being crushed. It's supposed to be the equities and bonds, the stock market and debt markets are supposed to be negatively correlated as one goes up, the other goes down. But in 2022, both collapsed at the same time. Very, very, very unusual. And it means all kinds of portfolio strategies have have just not worked out as Mm. theory tells you to. So horrendous year for markets. The good news is we've had two years where global stock markets are down. That hasn't happened since 1928. So if you look at what um, investors are expecting for 2023, 70% of them are expecting uh, stock markets to be up. Unsurprising, (laughs) given that we've had two years of down, which is incredibly unusual. You're saying buy the dip, aren't you? I'm saying, well, I I, I never sold, mate. I'm I'm a buy and hold (laughs) investor. I invest for decades, so I never sold. I'm always in. I'm always in. Timing a market is almost impossible. I think you're about right there. Keep dripping and uh, don't panic. And don't look at what you've got. I think that's another thing to do, isn't it, if you're doing it for the long term. Don't be tempted to look. Yeah. Um, finally, Japan. I mean, things have been happening in Japan. In, in inflation's actually been happening, which, funnily enough, could uh, help the economy. So this is really, really interesting, right? Well, I wouldn't go that far. So what this is really interesting is the rest of the world has battled with inflation. and Interest rates have risen. The Japanese central bank has been the one standout with, you know, zero to negative interest rates. With inflation starting to creep back into Japan, one wonders when the Japanese central bank is going to catch up with everybody else. The problem for Japan is that their debt to GDP, their government debt to GDP, is at 200 odd, well, over 200%. So the country cannot afford higher interest rates because the country is so massively indebted. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens in Japan in 2023. Are they going to catch the inflation problems mm. of the rest of the world? Haven't really. You know, remember inflation in, in the UK, over 10%. Inflation in lots of parts of the world at very, very high levels. If they start to really cap the inflation bug in Japan, then what on earth happens to their sustainability of their country's debt? Indeed. I mean, I lived in Japan in the the 1990s, and I think prices are still more or less the same. Uh, But, uh, you know, things could change. Louise, thanks for joining us. That's Louise Cooper, and you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Just coming up to 12.20 in the afternoon here in London. You are indeed listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24 with me, Guy Delaunay. And it's now time to hear from Monocle's Andrew Muller on what we learned this week. 
We learned this week that it just wasn't enough, as our mercilessly exacting producers saw it, to have concisely and wittily wrapped up what we learned in all of 2000 and goddamn 22 in last week's monologue. We learned that they also expected us to concisely and wittily wrap up what we will learn in 2000 and actual 23 in this week's monologue. So stick, or if you like, bear with us as we read the tea leaves. Scatter the runes. Gaze into the crystal ball. Whoops. Read the entrails. Or just give the wheel a spin in order to forecast what 2023 has in store. Come on. Just get on with it. Other than likely not fewer than another two dozen uses of that clip. So, in the world of politics, we will learn whether the voters of Estonia, Finland, Paraguay, Thailand, Turkey, Guatemala, Cambodia, Luxembourg, Poland and Spain, among others, apologies to anyone we missed, are happy enough with the people presently governing their countries or would prefer to give some other mob a whack at it. While we, for one whimsical news monologue, would never presume to instruct any of our listeners anywhere how to cast their vote, we would mildly suggest, given what we have learned from our long-standing professional obligation to pay attention to the various kooks, crackpots, yahoos, halfwits and downright dingbats elected to high office in a good few jurisdictions these last few years... And then they have cans of soup. Soup. And they throw the cans of soup. That voters prioritise such qualities as character and competence and see if that works out any better. Just an idea, putting it out there, planting seeds. And thanks for all your hard work again this year, the general muttered agreement crew. Take a short holiday. You've earned it. Yeah. We will learn once again of the United Kingdom's formidable capacity for staging grand ceremonial events which entrance the planet. Within days of each other in May, the coronation of King Charles III will take place in London and the Eurovision Song Contest will be staged in Liverpool. It is obviously important that anyone considering visiting the UK to see either of these does not get them mixed up. So remember, one is a faintly absurd and just screamingly camp ritual in which a cast of otherwise unemployable weirdos caper about in gaudy costumes to a soundtrack of dismal music, and the other is a song contest. What we are likeliest to learn from Eurovision, of course, is who will come in second behind Ukraine. Once again, the clear sentimental favourites, and fair enough. Come on, guys, have you not got cases to pack? Ukraine are officially the host of 2023's Eurovision, having won 2022's Eurovision with this. However, Ukraine is unable to hold it in Ukraine for depressingly obvious reasons. We have not learned yet who or what Ukraine's 2023 Eurovision entrant will be, but it would be nice if events in Ukraine progressed to the extent that it is in fact Vladimir Putin being compelled at gunpoint to sing the theme tune from Volodymyr Zelensky's pre-politics sitcom while shuffling abjectly and being pelted with expired pomegranates. 
Because, probably, what we most hope to learn in 2023, ideally sooner rather than later, is that Russia has finally learned that the jig is up vis-à-vis -vis its present escapade in deranged imperial hubris. But it is likely that prior to any such epiphany, we are going to learn whether the resolve of Europe and the wider West can weather a cold, dark and expensive winter in the service of something more fundamental, i.e. the right of democratic sovereign states to go about their blameless workaday business without getting invaded by the nation-sized midlife crisis next door. Happy New Year to all our listeners, and to our Ukrainian listeners in particular, at least a much better New Year and a hearty Slava Ukraini. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And that was the ever-learned Andrew Muller there. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. And finally, it's time for our culture roundup. Joining me in the studio is Monocle's Laura Kramer. What I've learned is when we talk through the glass about not having a promo between one item and the next, you should remember that when you're doing the introduction. That's what I've learned this week. Um, what I've also learned uh, from what we've got written down in your script here, Laura, is that Taylor Swift has, and I love this word, propelled UK vinyl sales past sales of CDs for the first time in 35 years. There is a reason she's referred to as the music industry, and this is why she just breaks records left, right and centre. So her latest album, which is called Midnight's, and mm. it is excellent, although I do say that as a Swifty, has sold more vinyl than, uh, than CDs since the 1980s. It is actually quite impressive. And she's a very savvy businesswoman, Taylor Swift, as you can imagine. One thing that is is to take into consideration, she actually released five different versions of the vinyl. And because the album is called Midnight's, four of them can be put together to create a clock on the wall. And so she creates these incentives for fans to actually purchase this more of the same. This is going back to the 80s, isn't it? Because they're saying here in The Guardian, in this article that you've linked to, that, uh, you know, they've been talking about it being the first time since the 1980s that vinyl has outsold CD as a format. And that was the thing with vinyl. You would have these multiple formats, which did do clever things like form a calendar and, and, and such like. Uh, so she is, she's taking, she's, she's an 80s baby, isn't she? She, I mean, one of her greatest albums is 1989, so <laughs> it yeah. makes sense. But yeah, it's now become the highest selling vinyl album of the 21st century. So Miss Taylor Swift slaying as per usual. I just, uh, just to put this in perspective, five and a half million albums on vinyl were sold in the UK uh, in the past year. Um, and 80,000 of those are Taylor Swift. So, I mean, that even in old money, that would have qualified for a silver disc because yeah. 60,000 sales is silver in the UK. It's it's especially impressive, too, when you take streaming into account. Mm. And they've obviously become collector's items and more people are getting into vinyl. They're kind of the throwback. It's very hipster, very cool. But yeah, it, oh, well, I'm a hipster and throwback. Thank you very much, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> There's a backhanded compliment if ever I heard one. I just I just went record shopping in between programs. <laughs> Taylor Swift was not included. Oh, well, you know, other top tens, if you're interested, at least in the UK, were Harry Styles. I bet it was. Harry Styles. Yeah. Um, Liam Gallagher was mm -hmm. in there as well. Arctic Monkeys, by any chance? Uh, yes, actually. Mm. They're number three with the car. So mm. some, some, some of they yours? Do, they do very well on, on, on vinyl. I'm not a particular fan of any of those. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's good to know. I mean, it just makes it all a bit more special and different, hunting out. My, my children think I'm, I'm an idiot, but um, I, I like the, 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 the thrill of the chase. Well, nobody would say that about you here, Guy. 
<laughs> uh, give it time. Um, <laughs> let's talk about something a bit more highfalutin, the Met Opera House in New York. It sounds like it's got a bit of trouble here, endowment troubles, withdrawing 30 million bucks from its endowment amid financial troubles. What's going on? Yeah, like many live music uh, and entertainment venues, it suffered really badly due to, obviously, the pandemic, and it has yet to reach the same level of people coming to the Opera House. Now, it is going to withdraw up to $30 million. That's from a story in the New York Times. And they will also be looking at putting on more contemporary works in order to try to draw people back in. Now, on top <laughs> of all of this, they also suffered a cyber attack. And for nine days, people couldn't purchase tickets. And this is at the height of the Christmas season when many people are going on there. So actually, if you go on the Metropolitan Opera House website, you see they have this lovely little uh, info box that lets people know that their customer data and their credit card information was not taken and they don't have that in the system, but that people are able now to purchase tickets again. So not having a great time. It will be interesting to see when they put on these more contemporary works, if that works for them. I love the idea that they're actually going to, you know, deal with a crisis by putting on things that people might actually like. <laughs> I mean, who'd have thought of that? That's Brand a radical new. proposal, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's all, all this time they've just been deliberately putting things on to, uh, to, 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 to punk the audience. No, I think, I mean, right now they have things on like Aida. It's just classic works and mm. I think people are maybe looking to refresh what, what's out there and what they're putting out. So have they said what more the more contemporary works might be. They haven't yet. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be bra- it won't Watch be, this. It won't be stomp or anything or river dance or anything like that, will it? <laughs> it's probably a little bit more highbrow. <laughs> yeah, probably, and probably even more contemporary than that. Um, and finally, uh, talking about juggernauts and and pr- propulsion and all the rest of it. Uh, Avatar: The Way of Water has crossed the one billion in ticket sales mark, um, which is only halfway to breaking even, according yeah. to director James Cameron. That's right. So they need to make at least two billion now. The first Avatar was just 80 million shy of $3 billion mm. at the box office. Um, the, he's got two hurdles to look over if he wants to cross that threshold, which is, first of all, the first Avatar did very well in China, had a massive appeal there. But with China, with the massive COVID surge that they're mm. having right now, people aren't going to the cinemas as much. And so that's going to be a problem. Also, the first Avatar had very long legs, whereas this one is seen a big dip after the first few weeks. So we'll see how that was. The good thing that's in its favor is that it doesn't have any really big competition right now. And really, mm. the only thing it needs to look, look out for is in February, there's a new Marvel film coming out. So then there we might have an issue. A but. couple of things we didn't have in 2009 when the original uh, Avatar came out was the uh, proliferation of large screen 4K TVs in people's homes and the, the sort of mass streaming effect that we've got at the moment. So is Mr. Cameron maybe looking at, say, you know, doing a little bit of a premium streamium thing, you know, 16 quid to watch your Avatar on your 4K <laughs> telly? Well, maybe, but, you know, we'll see what how he deals with this because there are several others Avatar sequels on the way for the next uh, 2024. And we've seen how well that works with Star Wars, haven't we? I just, I, you have to admire his confidence in this. I just... Confidence? Chutzpah? <laughs> I, I, yeah, Nemesis meets of... Hubris. That's the sequel. I'll, I'll tell you one thing about James Cameron. Uh, he is the level of petty that I aspire to. Is he? Yeah, because the, the third biggest film of all time, Titanic. We all know there was a big debate about whether Jack could have gotten on the door and survived. Spoiler alert, Jack doesn't survive. This man 
carried out scientific experiment to test the theory, and it now has proven that Jack would not have lived. Both of them would have died if they were both on the door. So imagine being that committed to proving you're right. I just really respect it. He's got a lot of time on his hands between films, hasn't he? Let's <laughs> and face money. it. Yeah, <laughs> money. and money. And money. That's the crucial thing, isn't it? Uh, thanks for joining us, Laura. That's Monocle's Laura Kramer. And that is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb, and our studio manager was Nora Hull. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time, but that's it from me for this stint. I'm Guy Delaunay. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>